Hey guys, this is Mrs. Roseman. I am back with a recap for chapter three on consciousness. Something I really enjoyed seeing in the forum and in um, emails and in the learning activity this week was that many of you all really explored topics of interest to you. Um, one example, um, just sharing real quickly, um, something that I find really fascinating about the experience of pain, for example, is the idea of hypnotic analgesia. The idea that you can be trained um, within a therapeutic setting to direct attention away from pain um, in a really helpful way, uh, particularly for treating certain types of conditions like um, chronic pain. So changing the conscious experience of pain is fascinating to me, understanding pain on a sensory um, and emotional level. Um, also, also really fascinating. I encourage you to explore more um, of topics that get you excited because this is an introductory course and we cover so many topics. Um, I also encourage you to reach out if there's a resource or something you're interested in learning more about. I am happy to, I'm happy to direct you. In the forum this week, I was incredibly impressed by the ways in which you handled um, this challenging topic. I am still kind of working my way through um, responding, um, but I made it about halfway through. And um, at this point, something that was really impressive to me was the way in which you talked about um, different risk factors for addiction. You could think about the kind of flip side of this coin, um, which is what are some of the protective factors against addiction? So looking at really powerful forms of social support, for example, um, and what role that might play um, in encouraging healthy coping mechanisms. I think in the time of COVID-19 and the pandemic, it may be especially important to consider um, these really big and tough complex issues um, like addiction or very specifically like opioid addiction and looking at um, more effective ways uh, to treat and to help people to, um, to manage pain as well as to manage addiction. Um, so I wanted to um, just highlight a couple of different factors that I heard many of you um, did a great job just um, thinking about particularly treatment and recovery um, from a holistic perspective. Um, encouraging help-seeking behaviors, social support, and, and access to mentors and to people who, um, who have been through um, difficult drug addictions and have recovered. And I also really appreciated folks who shared personal stories um, and their lives um, being touched in some ways by addiction. A quick note on the social cultural factors like I was getting into just a minute ago. Um, I thought it was really powerful that many of you brought up um, drug availability, the norms around really common drugs um, like alcohol, um, particularly vulnerable sets of development such as the teen years um, and um, drugs as a, as a tool for belonging um, and as a coping mechanism. I really appreciate it that you were able to break down and use this biopsychosocial model. So understanding biological risk factors like genetics um, and how different people um, can be programmed to respond a bit differently um, to drugs based on um, genetic differences. Um, you also thought about some psychological traits, um, some personality traits and coping styles, um, the way people manage and regulate their own emotions, and then social cultural factors like we were just talking about, um, family relationships, um, drug availability, all kinds of um, all kinds of important factors 
there. When we get to studying uh, mental health um, and think a lot more about um, psychological disorders and treatment, we will also use this biopsychosocial model of health and well-being, seeking to understand complex causes um, and the ways in which those can inform um, treatments and helping people to live their best lives, um, to recover and overcome, for example, addictions. <clears throat> Lots of, um, lots of powerful ideas shared in the forum again. So thank you um, for your honesty and for your interest um, and engagement in the topic. I really hope you've learned a lot from each other as well. I've been seeing that there's been some um, really interesting commentary and follow-up discussion um, among peers. And I'm, that's excellent um, to see that in action. Switching gears just a little bit. Um, something that I wanted to kind of emphasize during the last section of this recap is um, just some things that I saw in the Ed Puzzles. I wanted to um, share with you all a little bit about how I um, how I think about sleep <laughs> as it relates to consciousness and how I would teach about it in a classroom setting. So one of my students asked me um, to explain something that I um, that I say about sleep which is that is a progressive and reversible loss of consciousness. So when you think about sleep, oftentimes um, what can be helpful is to think about um, this state of awareness that you have throughout the day. You know that your state um, can change, right? Many different altered states of consciousness, your level of attention and alertness change pretty predictably throughout the day. And when you are getting ready to fall asleep, um, you begin slowly to lose awareness both for internal mental activities, so your own thoughts and feelings, as well as external um, stimuli like sights, sounds, smells, right? You begin to progressively lose awareness um, as your brain waves shift um, into, that, um, into that first stage of sleep. As you move from stage one to stage four, we can track brain waves. We can look at the ways that the wavelength and wave height increase. And you can look at that as a progressive metaphor, right, for the ways in which um, you are getting deeper and deeper and deeper into sleep and your state of consciousness has, has changed. Your awareness for what's going on um, is very limited. And instead, your brain... Um, can focus on and does focus on other more restorative activities like um, building proteins and consolidating memory. Speaking of memory, this chapter on, on sleep and on consciousness really sets us up well to speak in unit two and to really investigate learning and memory. So sleep is not wasted time. And one of the things we know about those deeper stages of sleep, for example, stages three and four, that slow wave sleep you get more of towards the um, beginning of your night's sleep and then the REM sleep that you get more towards the um, later stages of your of your night. Those are important for consolidating. Those stages are important for consolidating different types of memories. So, so far, psychologists have been able to connect that slow wave sleep with um, helping to move from short-term to long-term memory um, what you can consciously recall. So episodic memory, episodes from your own life, facts that you've learned throughout the day, perhaps in a psychology course. REM sleep, another stage of sleep, um, 
in which if we're deprived of it, our brain will actually move faster through the other stages just to get to it. And we know that REM sleep, there's a lot of important things going on, including consolidation of procedural memories. So motor skills, the, the kind of how-to. And it's interesting to think about how, um, for example, connecting to development in this chapter, how infants, and perhaps why infants might spend about half their time in REM sleep um, as compared to as compared to adults, um, much lower percentage, maybe about 20% um, maximum of our, of our time spent in REM. So I just wanted you to think a little bit about um, the connection there between sleep and consciousness, how important sleep is for us and for that, that rest, that restoration, building up proteins, memory consolidation, anything you can do, any small adjustments you can make in your life to get more consistent, um, high-quality sleep. It'll be worth it. All right, guys. I'll talk to you next time.